This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. Coming up, buy now, pay later, the credit you have when you're not having a credit. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, wants to renew and revitalise the Australian economy. He wants to make it more equitable and ensure we can transition to net zero. And doing that bit will require using something called a sustainable financial taxonomy. So what's that? Christy Graham's Chief Executive of the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute. Christy, help us out here. So a taxonomy in this sense is essentially a set of definitions that tells you which economic activities are sustainable. So the idea is that this definition set would then be used right across the finance sector for them to ascertain whether an activity, an asset or an investment product is making a positive contribution to a net zero, resilient and inclusive future in Australia. So it's a, it's a sort of set of rules or a set of tools and then a process, yeah? That's right, yeah. So it helps translate some of those high-level goals like the Paris Agreement or the Sustainable Development Goals to investable opportunities, activities, assets, investments that will help to move Australia and the world to that future that's envisaged in those high-level international agreements. And that's its purpose. It's got to set up an ecosystem in which capital goes where it should go to get us to net zero. Exactly. It's making it easier for capital to flow in the right direction to achieve that net zero future. Now, we do understand a lot of what we have to do. We have to do things like reduce and then stop using fossil fuels. We have to electrify more systems than are currently electrified at the moment and that they would be powered by renewables. We have to develop alternative processes for for things like making concrete. We, We know quite a bit. Is this about trying to find out where else we need to send the money? As you say, we we do know what we need to do. This is about making the link between those high-level global pathways and, and the work that's been done to say these sectors need to transition in this way down to, well, what does that mean in the Australian context for an investor or a bank who is looking at a company or looking at a financial product how aligned or not are those different investment opportunities with some of those global pathways? Um, At the moment, investors and banks are making those assessments using a range of methodologies and in a range of ways, and that costs people a lot of time, money, expertise, the sort of high transaction costs of that approach. So taxonomies essentially do that assessment once for the economy And then everyone can use that set of definitions to determine whether what they're looking at is aligned with some of those sectoral or national um, sectoral transition pathways. I know quite a few other countries are further down this path than us. Are there any that have, say, started this process, thought they were doing okay, and then once they've put it in place, found they weren't doing as well as they expected to be doing? Yes. So what taxonomies traditional uh, sort of the early mover taxonomies like the European taxonomy does is classify what is already green and then um, other things that do not fit that category are excluded from the taxonomy. I think when Singapore started doing its its taxonomy, it found that what's currently green is only three to five percent of current economic activities. And so really working out which things would support a transition of the rest of economy 
into that green category was the most critical part for them in developing a taxonomy. Australia will be in exactly the same position. So only 1.5% of the ASX 200 is currently aligned with the green criteria for the EU taxonomy. Transition, given the shape of our economy, is critically important. And you have to take a an approach of what will the impact be? You have to think of it in terms of impact. That's right. You really need to prioritise how you develop those criteria based on the impact those sectors have and the objectives that you're seeking to achieve. So prioritising climate objectives, climate mitigation and adaptation as first order priorities, and also prioritising sectors based on their contribution to that objective, their contribution to the national economy and the potential economic growth in those sectors. Now, you're suggesting a traffic light system. How would that work? So there's other jurisdictions globally that have used the traffic light system, Singapore probably being the best example of that, and the ASEAN taxonomy will also use that as well. And the idea of the traffic light system is to very clearly demonstrate those things that are already green, Um, so that would be labelled green. The orange classification is those activities that are currently transition or aligned with the transition that needs to happen in a particular sector and red activities are those that will not be and will never be aligned with a net zero sustainable future. Right, yeah. And this is part of what uh, the Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, I think has in mind for moving towards a zero emission economy. But really until now, it's been driven by the financial sector. Why are they so keen to get this going? Yeah, so it's been the banks, but also investors and insurers as well. It's really been a whole of finance sector um, effort to develop this initial phase of the work around a taxonomy. And this is driven in part because Australian financial institutions operate globally. They want to access global capital markets um, and remain globally competitive. And they also have investment portfolios that have a global reach. And other countries are increasingly bringing in taxonomies that as I sort of mentioned before, are not fit for purpose in the Australian context that don't look at that transition area and and don't encourage investment in transition activities. So Australian investors and banks are increasingly kind of being held to account by international standards that are not fit for purpose in the Australian economy. So this is why the finance sector, in advance of government, who is now very supportive, and engaged um, in the taxonomy as a critical part of their overall sustainable finance strategy. But that's why the finance Mm. sector moved ahead with some of this work early. And of course, the thing that's so salient for us is that we have a very carbon intensive economy and we've had some years of policy inertia. That's right. So in in most other countries, this has very much been driven by governments. I would say the situation in the Australian context is unusual and, and demonstrating from the finance sector many Investors, many banks, uh, many insurers have made net zero commitments and taxonomies are critical tools to allow them to realign their portfolios and loan books to meet those net zero commitments that they've made in many cases prior to, to government making those commitments. Yeah. Christy, will there be regulation around this? When we have a taxonomy, will it be something that's regulated and, and that there would be compliance and a kind of policing of it? So at this stage, the paper and the work that ASFI has done doesn't propose to make it mandatory. Rather, it's a tool to guide capital allocation decisions. Um, But if government decides to use it to support the work they're doing to combat greenwashing, then it may be that they choose to mandate reporting on how aligned 
a financial product is with the taxonomy. Um, and this is used in other jurisdictions as well. So when financial products are labelled as green in Europe, for example, they have to report how much of the underlying assets in that product are in the green category of the European taxonomy. So we'll see where government sort of decides to take that. Christy, that is sadly all we have time for, but thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Richard. Good to talk to you. Christy Graham from the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute. Buy now, pay later. Do you use it? It's a bit like lay-buy used to be, only inverted. You pay part of the full price and get whatever you're buying straight away. Instalments are deducted automatically, and as long as the money's there in your account to cover them, you don't pay interest. You might have to pay an account fee. You definitely have to pay late fees. But technically, you're not paying interest. And the companies that provide these services, Afterpay, Zip, Klarna, others, are not regulated as credit providers. But that could be about to change. Treasury's working on a new regulatory regime, and it's supposed to be up and running by the end of the year. And this comes in part because a significant portion of buy now, pay later users are having difficulties. Julia Cook's a sociologist at Newcastle University. She's been looking at how people interact with BMPLs. And the first thing to know is that a lot of us use them. According to some recent figures from the Reserve Bank, in the 2021 to 2022 financial year, there are about 7 million active by now pay later accounts in Australia and about $16 billion in transactions. And we know that that's been increasing year on year since the, the mid to late 2010s. So it's a, a kind of large and growing sector. Buy now, pay later users are young. 60% of them are 18 to 34. Two thirds of them are women. But why? Well, there's a few reasons. I think the big ones would be around the kind of presentation and advertising of many of the buy now, pay later services. So they directly are advertising to women. Um, they have you know young women and aspirational imagery in their advertising. They are partnered with, for instance, Australia Fashion Week. Um, their affiliate brands tend to be brands that appeal to women, especially young women. Um, and there's also the types of products that are purchased through Buy Now, Pay Later. So we know that the two largest purchase categories are clothing and accessories and gifts. And those are types of things that women are disproportionately likely to buy, especially women in heterosexual relationships who typically bear the brunt of gift purchasing. And um, as well, from the perspective of the Buy Now, Pay Later services, um, women are typically viewed as being pretty ideal targets for unsecured lending due to the the sense that they're risk averse, which is supported by a lot of research in in the kind of studies of risk, behavioural economics. It's been challenged and complicated a bit in some some recent research, but nonetheless, the claim that women are very risk averse and are a, a good bet for lending is is quite pervasive. For young people, Julia's found how they feel about buy now pay later is critical. They viewed buy now pay laters as you know, fun, frivolous. The phrase that kept coming up was a little bit kind of cheeky, you know, using it for a cheeky spend. And in contrast, they viewed credit cards, bank loans as 
serious, as really scary, as something that could, um, and I'm quoting, ruin your life. So by now, pay laters were seen as fun and also ultimately as less threatening. Okay. So what does that mean for a real 19-year-old? I'm heading back to uni in about a couple of weeks. So I just bought um, some pyjamas. I bought some glasses, which I'm very excited about. They're very cute. I bought um, some slides because my hall is yucky. Um, I bought some shorts and I bought some workout gear. So hang on, why you can afford those things. Why not buy them, just, just pay for them? Because I don't like to spend all of my money at once. I don't like to see it leave my bank account in a big old chunk. I like to split it up. Did you say you bought four things? And did you buy them all on Afterpay? I bought 10 things. You bought 10 things. What? How much have you spent? One eighty-two fifty, and it uh, came down from $200 because I had a discount and a secondary discount. So one eighty-two fifty, mm-hmm. and you've had to, what, come up with a quarter of that, mm-hmm. yeah? Yes. So yes. for 40, 46 bucks. Yeah. Yes. And you're really, you're really comfortable doing this, aren't you? Yeah, because I know that, like, if something happened and I needed to pay it all at once, I could, but I just don't want to. So I don't. And how often do you reckon you use it? Well, like once, once a month, maybe once every two months. I really don't use it often. But if I'm doing, like, a big purchase... I usually try and break it up instead of seeing all the money come out of my bank account at once. I have to say, you are a good little saver. Yes, thank you very much. I'll take that. Part of the attraction for young people is how easy it is to sign up. It takes about five minutes. It's what's called frictionless. It means that you don't need to, um, for instance, tell the, the service what you're intending to to use the buy now pay later for you don't need to disclose your your aims in many cases the amount of kind of compliance checking is um is quite low so you're able to sign up and link to a card and start spending really quickly andrew grant is an economist at the university of sydney business school he wanted to find out more about bnpl users we collaborated with uh, one of the major banks, one of the big four banks, and you know, we were able to access their transaction data. So we were able to identify you know, users of the bank who had buy now, pay later transactions. So every time you'd make a transaction, you make a payment to Afterpay, for instance, there'll be a text string on your finan- on your bank statement that says you've made a transaction with Afterpay. And from that, we can look to see you know, who is... Uh, holding an Afterpay account. All right. So looking at that data, what did you find? So what we found, and we looked through about four main BNPL providers, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, We found around 40% of people who had a Buy Now Pay Later account had multiple Buy Now Pay Later accounts, which is quite high. There are a couple of reasons why you'd have more than one account, but one is that you need to. For people with more than one buy now, pay later account, we are seeing, and these are people who are typically considered higher risk from the perspective of a credit, right? So people in lower socioeconomic postcodes. Uh-huh. So people would be where, you know, maybe we, what we did was we classified postcodes based on what the uh, Bureau of Statistics comes up with. So they, they rank postcodes from one to 10, one being the lowest socioeconomic decile and 10 being the highest socioeconomic decile. So... What we did see is a high amount of buy now, pay later usage concentrated in lower socioeconomic areas. 
about one in five users are having problems. We're seeing people who are really, I guess, under serious financial stress are taking out buy now, pay later. And that's the real concern. This was identified by a survey by ASIC uh, a couple of years ago. They were seeing, you know, people were getting buy now, pay later and then struggling to pay it off. So they would take out additional loans to pay off their buy now, pay later. So I get a product that allows me to purchase things interest free. Mm -hmm. And then I end up taking out an expensive loan to pay off my interest free debt. And that was what they were finding concerning. Things like going without essentials to say, I want to pay off my buy now, pay later debt. Uh, I guess I can't eat this week. And those types of things are really where people were finding a, a little bit concerning. Fiona Guthrie is more than a little bit concerned. The Chief Executive of Financial Counselling Australia is really worried. Because financial counsellors help people experiencing financial hardship. And a few years ago, we started to notice people coming to see our services uh, with these new debts, buy now, pay later debts, and they have increased in prevalence. And people are just struggling with affordability. And so they're experiencing financial hardship because of buy now, pay later. What does that mean, Fiona? People not being able to afford other essential expenditure. So because they've got so much buy now, pay later, you might think it's a small amount of debt. So you make one payment, then you're going to make another one and you might have got some more in between times. And so it snowballs. And so all of a sudden you don't have enough money for your rent or your food. And we see people are also using buy now, pay later to pay for the essential expenditures such as food or electricity. I mean, as an example, how, how is it possible for a young woman on a youth allowance of $522 a fortnight to end up with $8,000 of buy now, pay later debt? Now, we see people who just can no longer make ends meet and they're in a debt spiral because of these products. That's supported by a new survey from the Consumer Policy Research Centre in Victoria. One in five who took out a BNPL has asked for payment assistance and nearly the same number had to miss a payment. One of the other harms I haven't spoken about is that when people miss payments, most most of the product providers will charge late fees. Some of them also charge account keeping fees. And for small amounts, the effective interest rates on those products are much more than credit cards and sometimes 40-50%. It depends on the amount and depends on the on the provider, but they're marketed as benign and easy to get and you know, help your budget. They do exactly the opposite. They can make it much harder to manage your money. The Victorian data shows that BNPL users are three times more likely than other people to borrow money from friends or family, three times as likely to seek community help or emergency relief, and twice as likely to go without a meal. On The Money Today, we're looking at Buy Now, Pay Later, which, as you've heard, is very easy to start using. But sociologist Julia Cook says what's not always well understood is that BMPLs come with obligations. It varied quite a lot, but we found on the whole, um, the young people that we were speaking to and who responded to a survey that we did, um, they generally did not understand that buy now, pay laters could lead to some of the same kind of outcomes as something like credit cards. So they did not necessarily understand that if they missed payments on their buy now, pay laters beyond being charged a late payment fee, they could also be pursued for payment. And they didn't necessarily understand that their account could eventually 
be referred to debt collectors. Um, we also found that um, even beyond kind of uneven understanding of of obligations, um, that in our survey, about half of the young people who were using Buy Now Pay Laters didn't have a good sense of what to do if they um, got into trouble, if they were unable to meet repayments, if they were experiencing hardship. They didn't have any sense of where to seek help, how to seek help, what that might look like, which we also found quite concerning. And that quick and easy sign-up process leads to other problems. So we found in some cases Minors, so people aged under 18, are signing up using their parents' details or even sometimes using their own details. And due to this frictionless sign-up process, it's not kind of identified that this is someone aged under 18 who shouldn't legally be accessing this service. Um, Also leaves the door open for situations of um, coercion where someone's making an account on someone else's behalf when they probably wouldn't want to be or shouldn't be. So there's some kind of drawbacks to this this kind of easy sign-up process. Economist Andrew Grant has identified another issue. What we definitely see is a, a key motivation to take out a Buy Now Pay Later account, and particularly a second Buy Now Pay Later account, is when you've maxed out your credit card. And basically, you need money. And, you know, this is, I guess, a fairly easily accessible form of cash that you can obtain without too many checks. And that's really the key to understanding this, is to say, look, ordinarily, your bank may refuse you an increase in your um, credit limit because Mm -hmm. you've sort of demonstrated that it's difficult to pay off your debts. But buy now, pay later is there as, you know, a life raft for you when you need money and you need it fairly quickly and easily. So if you're under financial stress, you've got more bills than income, what do you do? We did research with uh, one of the main credit bureaus, Illion, and they allowed us to have a look to see which products people were tending to become delinquent on first. Right. And so what it looks like is credit cards are, I guess, they're high interest, high cost products for consumers to service. Although they've got fairly low minimum payments, maybe it's 3% of the outstanding balance, people max them out and they're like, well, it's not really doing much for me anymore. You know, I'm willing to default on that and sort of service my other loans. And so what we did find definitely is that sort of lowest on the consumer's pecking order of I want to pay this. Actually, the system does it for you. Buy now, pay later instalments go out automatically. If the money's in your account, off it goes. But most people don't set up direct debits for their credit card, which means they're defaulting on the high interest product, adding to their financial stress. Their banks don't like it either. The main concern from, I guess, the financial industry outside of BNPL providers is that the risk of credit cards has increased due to the introduction of buy now, pay later. And this additional risk is being borne by lenders who have to comply with responsible lending guidelines of ASIC, whereas at the moment, buy now, pay later providers don't really need to do that. And so effectively what's happening is they're sort of front-running the consumer payments. They're getting premium access to the consumer's payments through the direct debit system, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's heightening the risk of credit cards. And then at the back end, you know, all of the, the hardship support that customers need 
is being borne by banks or other lenders who have to deal with customers who've taken out buy now, pay later and can no longer pay their personal loan or their credit card or they're having difficulties paying their mortgage. So really what lenders are seeing is that they're bearing more of the cost of the introduction of buy now, pay later than the buy now, pay later providers themselves. So BNPL products tend to be used by higher risk customers, partly because they're young, partly because they have fixed or limited incomes. And for about one in five of them, buy now, pay later makes their financial problems worse. And not just with their BNPL, with their other liabilities too. So there will be more regulation. Treasury took submissions at the end of last year and the new regime begins in July. How will it look? Okay, so there's three options that Treasury has put forward. The first one is um, essentially strengthening the existing buy now, pay later industry code. So right now that code's voluntary and um, this option would involve making the code um, mandatory and also making some aspects of it enforceable by ASIC. That would be the lightest of light touches. Option two is essentially limited regulation under the the Credit Act, which doesn't currently cover the buy now, pay later sector. So this would include a kind of modified credit licensing regime specifically for the buy now, pay later industry. Fiona Guthrie from Financial Counselling Australia. Well, option one just slightly beats up the industry's self-regulatory code. That's demonstrably not working now. Uh, The idea that we would allow an industry to self-regulate it when it's providing a credit product which can cause harm to a number of people is just ludicrous. So that should be dismissed out of hand. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that the government will just allow the industry to kind of just beef up its self-regulatory code. The second option is to a kind of half-pregnant option, really. It's a bit unclear what it is, but it would require buy now, pay later providers to be licensed and do some sort of affordability check. The problem with that kind of option is it's really unclear what the regulation would be. So we introduce more loopholes, potentially more opportunities for avoidance. Andrew Grant's more positive about option two. We have to think of how the regulation will affect the industry overall. And it's a degree of proportionality in terms of, you know, if I'm buying a $100 pair of shoes, do we need to do a full responsible lending and credit check? And finding the right balance where I guess the buy now, pay later industry can still exist without being overly regulated is I think what most people would be thinking is about the happy medium. You know, usually what happens when you get three potential options, we take the Goldilocks approach where we're going to find something in the middle. So that's option two is the one you... Well, option two is kind of, it at least allows lenders to have enough of a view that you might have a buy now, pay later account or that you are possibly participating in the buy now, pay later market and being able to adjust their decisions accordingly full-on reporting about uh, how you're performing on your buy now, pay later obligations on a month-to-month basis would be helpful, but it may be too difficult for the industry to pull off. Mm. And so what we could say is buy now, pay later can be regulated lightly enough that they can continue to maintain their operations without placing too much of the burden on other financial market participants. So I think proportionality is usually the key in these types of things. We can set up a regulation today and re-examine whether it works six months or you know, a couple of years down the line to see has is helped to even the playing field. Fiona Guthrie is much less concerned about the fate of the industry. 
it's sort of a strange argument to say that we should allow a business to continue if it actually harms people. Now, whether businesses continue or not is is not an issue that should be at the forefront of the government's mind. It's whether the products are provided safely and the credit actually helps people rather than harms them. And look, some of these buy now, pay later providers probably will go out of business, but that's probably nothing to do with regulation, but more about their business model. Many of them have never made a profit. They're facing a higher interest rate environment, so they're facing pretty serious headwinds anyway. Financial Counselling Australia is one of 22 organisations in the Closing Lending Loopholes Alliance. It supports option three, as do the sociologists at Newcastle University. The third option, which would be kind of the strongest option, would be full regulation under the Credit Act. So this would mean that buy now, pay laters would be treated essentially in the same way as credit cards, any other form of consumer credit. A much stricter and more transparent regime. We'll see what happens. That's it for now. The Money is produced by Kate McDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.